We're turning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament of the Bible, so kind of probably about three-quarters of the way through. Uh, if you're using one of these paperback Bibles we provided, that's on page 689. Um, and I'd ask you to please follow along with me as I read, uh, beginning in verse 11, and this will be on the screen behind me as well. Jesus speaking. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we're mindful right now that we, we are not the only people gathered around your word right now in Cayman, um, in other places in the world. And so we, we thank you, God, that you are even now speaking in 10,000 places. You are making yourself known to churches around the world. And so we pray, God, not just for ourselves, but for for the other churches in Cayman, for the other churches gathering now, God, that you would draw near to them, that you would draw near to us, that you would, that you would speak to us. God, we believe that this book is you speaking. It's not a dead book. It's a living word from a living God, and we have come to hear from you. Your words are life to us. And so we have come, we've gathered we are ready to hear from you, God. We ask that you would be the one speaking and that you would do that for our brothers and sisters in every place where we're gathering. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Kim and I recently got to introduce our kids. We have boys, five and three. We got to introduce our kids to one of our favorite all-time movies, which is The Lion King. We knew that we would be going to Disney World and we knew we'd be seeing a show about The Lion King there with the kids, and so we wanted to get them ready so that they could, could enter in fully into the experience. Now, I won't recount the whole movie for you, though I can sing all the songs word for word, and I dare you to test me. I don't, I don't dare you. Um, but I, I, there's a part of the story I just want to remind you of, being confident that since you're all people of good taste, you also have seen and loved The Lion King. I'm just reminding you of what you already know. So in The Lion King, Simba is on the run. His father, Mufasa, has been killed in a stampede. A stampede engineered by Mufasa's brother, Simba's uncle, Scar. And his intention was to kill Simba in the stampede as well. But since he survived, Scar decided he had to get rid of him by telling him that what happened to his father was all his fault. He, he had killed the king, and he needs to run away and never return. So Simba flees, he makes new friends, he begins a new life with no responsibilities, no worries. Hakuna Matata, right? But meanwhile, in the Pride Lands, food is getting more and more scarce. And the lionesses who have to hunt, they have to go further and further from home looking for food. And one day, Simba's old friend Nala, while hunting, discovers him. 
She, she had thought he was dead. That's what Scar had told everybody. And at first she's overjoyed that he's alive, but then she wonders why he never came back. He's the rightful king. His kingdom is suffering and he's absent. Their life is ebbing away and he's acting as if he has no responsibilities, no worries. They need him. He is the king. He needs to be the king. And this, this famous passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount exists to make the exact same connection for us between what we are and what we need to be. As we, and the stakes are equally high. As we'll see, the world is dying for Christians to be who we are. And so to understand this, we need to see in this passage two pictures, two calls, and two responses. And there should be a bulletin on the back of your bulletin if you want to, there should be an outline, rather, if you want to follow along there. So first, two pictures. These are famous pictures, salt and light. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Well, we, when we think of salt today, we usually think of it as a seasoning, right? It's something that brings out the flavor of food. And it was used for that in Jesus' day as well. But mainly, salt was used for preserving food, keeping it from going bad, keeping the meat from decaying. They would, the, the people would work it into their meat, and it would stop the growth of bacteria, and then the food would last longer, right? We, we still have an appetite for salty meat. We love our ham and our bacon and our bultong, but we have refrigerators. We have coolers that we can keep our food in to keep it from going bad when we travel. But for them, they didn't. So salt was absolutely essential. So what does Jesus mean by calling us the salt of the earth? He's saying the earth is prone to spoil. It goes bad. It decays morally. Left on its own, it deteriorates and falls apart. And the thing that's absolutely necessary to keep that from happening is the church. The followers of Jesus, that's what he's saying, we're the salt of the earth. And he says, we're the light of the world. What does it mean to be the light of the world? Well, light is an incredibly rich metaphor in scripture. Light has to do with hope, right? You imagine waiting just a long, cold night, waiting for the dawn, and then what it would mean to you to see that first, that first ray of sunlight on the horizon. Light has to do with hope. It also has to do with moral purity. There's no darkness in light. But light is particularly associated with truth, with God making himself known. When, when light comes, you can see things as they are. You can walk around and not stumble in the darkness. You can, you can live your life once you have the light that shows you how things are. You don't get lost. You find your way. And Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. The world is dark. It's lacking hope. It's lacking godliness. It's lacking truth. People don't know who they are or why they're here or how to live the life they've been given. And God, the way God is dispelling the darkness is the church, the followers of Jesus. We are the light of the world. Now, maybe you think that Jesus has a pretty pessimistic view of the world. He compares it to rotting meat and utter darkness. And you say, surely it cannot be that bad. No. We have, in the last 2,000 years, learned an extraordinary amount about virtually everything, right? Astronomy, biology, psychology, quantum physics. It's been an unprecedented flourishing of study and education, and are we any better? 
Are we any better than we were? Isn't that what's so frustrating right now? We've learned so much, so why are nations still threatening each other with nuclear weapons, right? We've, we've come so far, why are we still oppressing people based on something as superficial as their skin color? I don't think we are better. Do you? And, and are, we, are we any wiser than we were? We've learned so much, but do we have more truth? Aren't we asking the same questions we've always asked? What are we here for? Is there any meaning in our suffering? How do we raise good kids? We're asking the same questions, but we have even fewer answers. Jesus' assessment is that on their own, things fall apart. But he says they don't have to. God cares about this world. He made it. It all belongs to him. He wants it to be mended, not torn apart. He wants it to be lit up, not darkened, and so God has done something about it. He's entered into the world that he made. He was born into it, in Jesus, and Jesus said that he had come to bring the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Gospel of Matthew is about. Now, what, what, was, what does he mean when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? What, what he's talking about is that the, the reason the world falls apart, the reason it's in darkness, is because humanity has turned from God. We don't want him as our, our king. We don't want to be part of his kingdom. And so, so, having turned from God, we left his presence, and God became man to pursue us, to reconcile the world to himself. He died for the world, taking the sin of humanity on himself and suffering the punishment we deserve on the cross. And everyone who trusts in him, who says, that's what I need, I need that. I need to be forgiven. I need to be made new. Everyone who trusts in him is made new. They're reunited to God. They enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and when they enter the kingdom of heaven, these new people of the kingdom have a new way of living in the world. They have a new way of working, a new way of handling money, a new way of navigating marriage and parenting, a new way of doing relationships. It, he, Jesus says that these new people are the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world. They're going to have an influence. They can't not. So if you're a Christian, don't ever believe the lie that your life doesn't matter. That God can't or won't work through you. I mean, just imagine what it was like to be these people, right? What, what Matthew tells us is that Jesus is just beginning his ministry, and he's going around, he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and he's healing. And these great crowds are following him, but when he goes to sit down on the mountain, it's not the crowds he calls to himself. He calls his disciples. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he sees the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus, is, he's, he's drawing crowds, but there can't be many disciples, followers, people who've committed their life to him yet. And it's this little group on a mountain in this obscure corner of the Roman Empire to whom Jesus says, you are the salt of the whole earth. You are the light of the whole world. It's, it's this tiny crowd, and you, you have to imagine. You know, Jesus is saying, I'm going to push back the decay and the darkness in the whole world through you, and they have to be, wouldn't you? You'd be looking around, being like, I, he must be talking to someone else. There must be someone here that, that is not me. I, us? We are the light of the world? But that's what he's saying. Now, it's not something we're called to do alone, right? Look at verse 14. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp 
and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, it seems there for a minute like Jesus is maybe mixing his metaphors, right? Because he talks about light, and then he talks about a city, and then he talks about light again, but it's one picture. So this, this is what I want you to imagine. Imagine you're living in a world with no electric lights, and you are, you're traveling from one city to another city, and the sun has gone down on your way. And you are plunged in darkness that, that we can't even imagine, right? You can't, you can't see your hand in front of your face. But in the distance, elevated, you can see a light. It's the only light you can see, right? What is it? It's a city. It's, it's, it's torches on the walls of the city. It's lamps in windows. It's fires in the public spaces. It's all these little lights gathered together because that's where the people are. And these little lights together making a bright light in the darkness so you can find your way. Jesus says, that's the church. A collection of little lights in a sea of darkness that together can't be hidden. We together are the light of the world. We together are a city where the salt of the earth, a city on a hill. People should come into church and say, now this is how life is supposed to work. The relationships aren't falling apart here. Love is being shown here. Truth is being spoken here. God is known here. These people have hope. People should be able to come into any church in Cayman and say, this is what our country could be if everyone honored Jesus as king. That's what we are. But Jesus says it's not enough to know what we are. We need to be who we are. And so we've seen two pictures. Secondly, two calls. Distinctiveness and presence. Salt and light only do their jobs if they're both distinctive and present. So Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt that isn't salty is useless, right? The only thing that makes it usable, the only thing that makes it valuable is that it's salty. If it loses its saltiness, then you just throw it out, right? Salt, saltless salt is dirt. So it has to be distinctive, but it also has to be present, right? Salt doesn't do any good unless it's worked through the meat. Salt doesn't do anything in the shaker. It has to be distinctive and present. And light is the same way. The reason light is useful is it's not darkness, that it stands out. But it has to be present. It has to be seen. Jesus says in verse 15, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. Light does no good if people can't see it. And Jesus says that's what Christians need to be. Both distinctive and present. Living lives that are utterly different from the culture around us. Earnestly seeking to honor God. Loving others sacrificially. Rejoicing in suffering. Utterly distinctive, but also present not huddled up together, only relating to each other, afraid to move towards people who don't believe what we believe, present. It has to be both. So this is the recipe for influence, right? Do you want God to use you in your office, in the lives of your kids, with your friends? You need to be distinctive and present. If you're present but not distinctive, if you're not living as a Christian, then even if they know you're a Christian, they're just going to think Christianity is something you do on a weekend, not a new way to be human, and certainly not something that has anything to do with them. But if you're, if you're distinctive but not present, then people get no window into your life. They can't see what God has done in your life. 
So let's look a little deeper at both of these. What, what is the distinctiveness that Jesus has in mind? He says in verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What makes us distinctive is what Jesus calls good works. Good works are the outworking of what we believe and what we love. So if we mentally agree that God exists, that Jesus died for us, and we inwardly love him, but it doesn't come out in what we do and what we say and how we treat people, then it's not good works yet. The passage, this passage is meant to search us, okay? So here's, here's the question to think through. Is there a wall between your Christian life and the rest of your life? Like, do you have these sort of partitions in your life that you have, you have work life and home life and friend life and church life and everything's totally separate between them? Or is your Christian life, does your faith in Christ change all of life? Does it touch every part of it? Does it affect the way you work and the way you speak and the way you plan for the future? The way you treat your spouse, the time you spend with your kids, are you different and Jesus, in the passage we looked at last week, has described the difference that he, that he makes in our lives. He's given us a profile of a Christian in the Beatitudes. These, these famous sayings of, blessed are these people for this. Blessed are these people. So, I mean, for example, just look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek. This is how we're distinctive. Blessed are the humble. Are you a servant in your home? Do you see your spouse and kids basically as existing for your comfort and your good, or do you see yourself as existing for them? Or he says in verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Are you? Are you known among your neighbors as, as someone that people can come to when they're suffering? Are you known as someone who is quick to forgive, someone who gives second chances, someone who doesn't hold a grudge? Jesus said in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Is that you at work? Do people love having you on their team because you listen well and you compromise? Are you known for taking responsibility for your failures rather than blaming other people or blaming poor instructions? We are light, and Jesus is telling us to be light, to let our light shine through what we do. But good works are more than what we do. They include what we say. So look at verse 16 again. He said, So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, how will they know to give glory to your Father in heaven for your good works unless they know that your Father in heaven is why you're doing your good works, right? They can't, they can't do that unless they know that you're a Christian, unless you've said something to them about it. We're not just the salt of the earth living out God's goodness. We're the light of the world. We're spreading God's truth. Good works are more than just what we do. They include what we say. So do you know how God changes the world? It's disarmingly simple. It's through a group of people who aren't embarrassed to identify as Christians and speak about their faith in Christ and whose faith leads them to live distinctive lives of integrity and love and joy. That's how he does it. And the people around it, see it they see that and they think, there's something real there. I've always thought of Christianity as something that's just ignorant and judgmental and that belongs to the past, but here's a reasonable person devoted to this. They're living a compelling life. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I want to know more about that. 
That's what being distinctive makes possible. So we're called to be distinctive, but we're also called to be present. We should be among and around people who don't believe what we believe. And to be fair, lots of us are, right? We work in public schools. We work in secular companies. We, we greet our neighbors. We're friendly to other parents at school. But those relationships can be incredibly superficial. My experience is that the longer you're a Christian, the more tempting it is to just fill your life, fill all your time with other people who believe what you believe. And it's right and good to have deep relationships with people that share your faith. That's, that's fellowship, and that's wonderful. But we're here to be salt and light. We're here for the good of others. So are you intentionally pursuing friendships with people at work, in neighboring apartments, at the gym? Are you having them in your home? Are you making space in your life for people who are experiencing the decay and the darkness of the world? And if you're not, then how is anyone going to see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven? So there are two ways we can go wrong. Either we can be not distinctive, just living the way everyone else is living, or we can be not present, withdrawing, and just not caring about this world plunging on its way. And I want, I want you to think about which way you lean. Do you lean towards being not distinctive, or do you lean towards being not present? If you lean towards being not distinctive, then God wants to, he wants to reshape you. He wants to renovate your life. And the two main things he uses are his word and his people. So if you're aware that your life looks just like the lives of the people around you, is it because you're not spending time meeting with God through reading and thinking about the Bible? Do you spend time listening to what God has to say and asking him to shape your heart and your life by it? And, and not just God's word, but God's people, do you spend time in the company of people who are living the way you aspire to live? We're the we're in some ways the product of the people we surround ourselves with, right? Like every time Kim and I go back to the States, it reminds me how different my vocabulary is now from what it was five years ago when I came, right? I, I no longer take elevators. I take lifts. I don't go on vacation. I go on holiday. I'm never eager. I'm only keen. I'm, I'm trying to get myself to say robot instead of stoplight, but I still have a ways to go. You've even changed my breakfast habits, right? I would never have started eating wheat bix if it weren't for you. We're constantly being shaped by the people around us. So if you lean towards being not distinctive, are you in meaningful enough relationships with other Christians to be growing and changing through their influence? But some of us lean the other way. We're distinctive, but we're not present. We only spend time with other Christians. We don't seek ways to love and serve those around us who don't believe what we believe and maybe never will. If that's you, then God wants to give you his heart because God didn't stand far off from us, did he? Jesus did both of these things perfectly. He was utterly distinct. He never sinned, but he made himself utterly present with us. He came all the way from heaven so he could recline at table with sinners and tax collectors, so he could sit at a well with a woman who was sexually immoral. He came all the way from heaven so he could hang on the cross and die for you and me. Jesus moved towards brokenness. He moved into darkness. And that's what Christians should be known for too. We need to do both. We need to be shaped enough by God's word in this community that we stay utterly distinct, but we need to be moved enough by love to be utterly present. And when both these things are happening, Jesus says we're going to have a profound effect on the world. In the 19th century, 
a small group of Christians had a profound impact on the British Empire. They reformed prisons. They organized unions. They ended child labor. They, they founded orphanages. They did justice. And one of the most significant of them was William Wilberforce, who's a name you probably know. He was elected to Parliament on a lark when he was 21 years old in 1780. He just thought, for a kick, I'm going to run for Parliament. And he was elected. And five years later, he became a Christian. And almost immediately, his conscience was overwhelmed by a sense that he had a responsibility to use his position for the good of others. He wrote in his diary, God Almighty has placed before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. By manners, he didn't mean he wanted to reform politeness. It meant morality. He wanted God to use him to bring about greater godliness in England and to end the African slave trade. And he spent 20 years fighting for the end of the slave trade and succeeded. And then 26 more years to end it, to, to abolish it altogether in the empire. And it, it happened three days before he died. God used him to end slavery. Now, we can't measure ourselves against Wilberforce. God doesn't intend to use all of us as salt and light on that scale. But what I want to point out about him is, is he did what I'm describing. He was distinctive and present. He was passionate to be holy and passionate to do good, and God used it for his glory. So are we, are we thinking too small? Are we dreaming too small about what God could do if we decided to be both distinctive and present, to pursue a life of unashamed love for God and to move towards the world for its good? We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. You can make a difference in the lives of the people that you work with and pass by and live around. We can make a difference in this community and around the world that just takes distinctiveness and presence. And if we begin to live this way, we will experience, finally, two responses. Glory and rejection. So Jesus says when we're living this way, verse 16, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. God will be praised. That's one thing that will happen, but it's not the only response. Because remember what we read in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So, so which is it? Will, God, will people praise God because of us? Or will they reject us? It's both. Jesus says we're going to experience both. It would be nice if we had some guarantee that if we say and do the right things, people are just going to love it. But in a dark and decaying world, that's just not the case. Some things we say and do will be popular and attractive. One of the values of God's kingdom is mercy. And people in our culture, they love seeing mercy to the degree that, that we are generous to the poor and kind towards people who wrong us. People are going to appreciate that, right? Christianity puts a focus on showing sacrificial love to our spouses and our kids. It has family values, and that is going to be popular. People are going to see that and admire it. But some things we say and do will be offensive and off-putting. Christians believe that trusting in Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God, and that kind of exclusiveness is not popular these days. We believe in a just God who punishes sin that's not forgiven. We believe that sex belongs in marriage, these things are not going to be popular. They're going to seem ridiculous and outdated and backwards. And when we say that we believe them because God said it in the Bible, that's going to seem ridiculous too. The only way to be sure of not experiencing rejection is to become a chameleon. 
just to blend into the background of whatever setting we're in, to disappear, to go along with the flow and not make waves. But that won't lead to people seeing your good works and giving glory to your Father who's in heaven. If we live lives shaped by God's ways, there will be people around us who will see something real in it and will be attracted to it. They'll want to work on projects with us. They'll, they'll want to hear our advice. They'll want to get lunch. God will open a door for us to become part of their lives, and when we have that opportunity, then we can speak about God's love and what he's done through Jesus and how he's changed our lives. God has made us salt and light because he cares about this world. He loves the people you work with, the people in the next apartment, the barista and the cashier, the teller at the bank, your boss, your problem employee, the couple you see walking in the evening, the other family at the park. God loves them, and his provision for them is you. You are how God is spreading the good news about his son, and he's doing it through the ordinary stuff of life, just honoring him in little things, these little good works. That's how God is spreading the good news to the people in your life that he loves. Considering how weighty this is, it's amazing that it's not more complicated. What's God calling us to do? He's calling us to be unselfish people in a selfish world. He's calling us to, to tell people the truth about him, to do it even though it costs us being liked by everyone. It's not complicated, but it's also not easy. The kind of love that's required only comes from a new heart. We can't just try harder. Before we can be the light for others, we need to see that Jesus has been the light for us. When we were in the dark, he came to show us his Father in heaven. And he didn't show us merely by good works, but by the greatest work of love in the history of the world. Jesus wanted so earnestly for us to see God that he gave his life for ours so that his Father could embrace us as our Father. So Jesus, the great light of the world, has made us light. And just as he moved towards us, he's calling us to move towards the world, so that in seeing us, they can come to know and praise God. Listen, when Christians are distinctive and present, God will be known and praised. And isn't that what you want? For your life to result in more praise to God. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Be what you are and trust God with the outcome. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so humbled to be given this call. And we know that we can't do it without you. That we can only be the light to the degree that we receive it from you. That we can only be different to the degree that you change us. That we can only be used to the degree that you're with us. And so we invite you to use us. We invite you to work. Jesus, we praise you that you have done everything necessary to make us new. You died for us and you rose for us and you sent your spirit to us so that we could become different in a way that we could never do in thousands of years of trying harder. You have given us new hearts and I pray that for each of us and for us together that you would so change our lives that people in this country, people on this island, people in this community would see you in us and give you praise. 
that they would see you in us and trust you, that they would see you in us and love you, and that they would enter the kingdom as well. We offer ourselves to you for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.